Hello, Free Associations listeners. Just a quick note about this week's episode. We had some audio trouble and just wanted to make you aware of that. We are working on it so that it will be fixed by the next time we record. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Why in the world would this be? Is it our just like innate sense that, you know, we could do anything? We won the Uh, Revolutionary War. Uh huh. There you go. That's probably the explanation right there. Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast. For anyone who is as confused by the latest health study as I am by all of the pushback on masks. I don't know. Are you all observing uh, just a, a. strange amount of pushbacks on on indoor masking i feel like there's a lot of pushback on everything right now so i think it's you know it kind of comes and goes at different times but it seems like you know there's a lot of fatigue about the pandemic i feel it too yeah i have to admit i understand some of the pushback around vaccines it's just masks that seem to me a a strange one but anyway it is what it is So I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the Boston University School of Public Health, and I am joined once again by my colleague, Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Jess. Hi, nice to see you, Matt. And we are so pleased to have a special guest with us this week. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Erica Walker from Brown University School of Public Health. Welcome, Erica. Hi, thank you. Nice to meet you all again, I guess, since I'm coming from BU. Yeah, so glad to so glad to have you on the on the podcast. So as a reminder to everyone, if you could head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org, that's BU's hub for lifelong learning. You'll find all kinds of interesting public health programs and tools there. And also a reminder, if you are willing, give us a, a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your podcast app is. It helps people find us and helps other people enjoy the show. So let's get into it. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to look at a study on the impact of medical debt in the United States. Then in the second segment, we'll talk about the role of epidemiologists in communicating information about SARS-CoV-2, and I think you can expand that to pretty much anything public health related. And then in our last segment, which is our Amazing and Amusing, we'll get into some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found really fascinating. So let's get into segment one, where we're going to talk about an article that looked at the effect of medical debt in the United States. It was published in JAMA, and it was entitled very simply, Medical Debt in the U.S. 2009 to 2020 by first author Raymond Klunder of the Harvard Business School here in Boston, Massachusetts. So this one did get a lot of headlines. I'll read you a a few of them. So the New York Times says Americans' medical debts are bigger than was known, totaling $140 billion, which is interesting that they chose to focus on the amount from this. Vox says medical debt was cut nearly in half in states that expanded Medicaid. 
Yahoo says at 140 billion, America's medical debt nearly twice as bad as believed, again, focusing on that total amount. And the Washington Post says study paints stark picture of how some get mired in collections because they can't pay medical bills. So Jess, can you talk us through what they what they did in this study? Sure. Thanks for the intro. And this actually was a really interesting paper. And I would agree with you that the aggregated medical debt was probably not the most interesting of their of their findings or of their analyses. So just as a, a quick second of background, as we know, in the United States, medical debt is a substantial financial problem for many households associated with all sorts of poor outcomes related to reduced use of healthcare, poor mental health, deteriorated personal finances, um, and untreated chronic conditions. And so that kind of underlies the rationale to really look at medical debt, causes of medical debt, and the extent and prevalence of medical debt in the United States. So these researchers had three core research questions. That first one was descriptive to describe the total amount of medical debt in the United States um, and to stratify it by region in the US and by income level. And they were also interested to look at whether the Medicaid expansion that occurred that occurred in association with the ACA in many states in the United States was associated with changes to medical debt over time. So and just to, to say, ACA is the Affordable Care Act. The Affordable Care Act, yes, colloquially known as Obamacare. Yes. So they, what they what these authors did is they used a nationally representative sample of consumer credit reports that were obtained monthly from TransUnion, which is one of the three major credit unions or one of the three major credit reporting agencies in the United States. And these reports they obtained on a monthly basis from 2009 to 2020, to June 2020. So just to note by background, this study does not address medical debt that would have been incurred as a result of the pandemic because their study period ended right in the beginning months of the pandemic. And because of reporting time lag, when um, these credit agencies are aware of medical debt, this would not have accounted for debt that was incurred because of the pandemic. So this is pre-pandemic, just as framing. They obtained these monthly reports from uh, 2009 to 2020 to establish the scale and prevalence of medical debt, and then to characterize the differences by region and income level, as I said, and then assess the association between the ACA Medicaid expansion and distribution of uh, individual debt. So as I said, they selected a random 10% of credit reports that were maintained by TransUnion, and they used U.S. census region and income deciles associated with zip code as drawn from the American Community Survey to identify income decile associated by zip code, associated with zip code of participants in their study. And they divided the states in the U.S. into three groups in regard to Medicaid expansion. Medicaid, where they expanded Medicaid in 2014, which was the earliest allowable time per ACA. They expanded it after 2014, and then states that did not expand Medicaid at all. And then for some of the analyses, they combined the the time period of the expansion groups and just said, did they expand or did they not expand? They looked at medical debt in relation to non-medical debt as well, to other sorts of debt. And they they looked at debt in two different ways. They called it stock debt, which was aggregated kind of standing debt at that moment in time, which reflects debt accrued up to a seven-year period before the time period. They also looked at debt accrued within the year prior to that period of time. 
So we looked at debt in a few different ways, which apparently for, for people who do research on debt, this is kind of the way debt is characterized. And so they used a difference in different and difference in difference analysis to evaluate percent change in debt in states with expanded Medicaid versus states that did not expand Medicaid between these two metrics of debt. And they compared mean debt by income decile in 2009 and 2020, both between states that expanded and states that did not expand Medicaid to look at these differences in income-related disparities in debt burden in both the expanded and the non-expanded um, contexts. And they also used regression approaches to adjust for factors that also that, that could conf confound potentially the relationship between Medicaid expansion and individual medical debt, so various economic factors in the regions in their study. So their, their findings was that approximately 18% of people in the United States had medical debt, and the mean medical debt was about $430 as of June 2020. But interestingly, among those who had debt, the mean debt was more than $2,400. And during the time period from, 20, uh, from 2009 to 2020, there were overall declines in both medical debt and non-medical debt during this time period. But in about 2010, medical debt began to take up a larger proportion of total individual debt than any other source. They noted the greatest level of debt in the South, when they were doing this geographic stratification and the lowest level of debt of medical debt in the Northeast. And medical debt was significantly higher in poorer zip codes compared to wealthier zip codes with a mean difference of more than $500. States that expanded Medicaid as a result of the ACA saw a decline in recent debt of 34% more than states that did not expand Medicaid because of ACA. Similarly, the states that expanded Medicaid saw a reduced gap, a reduced disparity in medical debt distribution between the low and high income communities over the study period compared to those that did not expand Medicaid. And the states that, interestingly, the states that did not expand Medicaid saw an increase in the disparity of medical debt comparing high income and low income communities. In the adjusted models, the adjusted regression models that we're attempting to deal with or adjust for factors other than Medicaid expansion, they did not see differences in their associations once they adjusted for these different factors. And they also did not see differences in trends in non-medical debt in association with Medicare expansion, which again is kind of reinforcing their overall point that these reductions in individual medical debt were potentially due to Medicaid expansion from ACA and not to other factors. And similarly, the reduction in the disparity in an individual medical debt also was likely to be associated with Medicaid expansion. Great summary. I think you hit all the, the key points. It's a complex, it's a complex one. There's like a, a lot to talk about in this one. There's a lot to talk about yeah. and there's a lot going on here. I, it is worth pausing. Uh, particularly for our listeners who are not from the United States, just to remark on the fact that we allow this to happen. The fact that we, we, you know, I mean, in so many countries, you know, people don't go into medical debt because they have a, a medical system that, that, that doesn't allow this. But given this is where we are, we've, you know, the ACA the, was the, a system designed to reduce this burden and appears to be having some impact in the states where it was expanded. Erica, what's your what's your take on this study? What did you 
like and didn't like and what what was what stood out as of interest to you uh okay so i really like this study but one of the things that drew my attention is i'm from mississippi originally right so uh, it's one it's another layer of burden that we face being from the south it's like okay on top of everything else ranging from literacy rates to obesity we have this other burden that that we have to bear. So it just kind of just reminded me of this sort of cumulative effect of stress that we have to carry. And it's most severe in the South where I'm from. And then it's also most severe in, in poor people. So I grew up in as a poor person in, in the state of Mississippi. So it just kind of adds another layer. And so a lot of my, so my, a lot of my work going forward is actually working in Mississippi, you know, so I'm actually starting up a a study in Mississippi. And it's just something I wasn't thinking about before. You know, I was kind of focused on these sort of environmental contaminants like sound pollution, you know, air pollution. And I just wasn't even thinking about medical debt as being something that was significant to think about when designing the study. So I was like, oh, another another thing to 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 add to the to the to the puzzle. So I just found it eye opening, but also not surprising too, because we just carry the burden and we have historically. Absolutely, I mean it's 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 also interesting to me, you know, just sort of to to back up for a second and and think about how this study was done. I mean, credit reporting in 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 general is sort of a a, a weird setup that we have, I was going to say in the United States, but I'm sure, you know, credit reports are not unique to the United States, but they were you know, developed as a, 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 my understanding, as a tool to, you know, make decisions around lending from banks to be more objective. And yet they baked into the system all of these metrics that are, are, are biased against those who, that are biased in favor of those who already have money and wealth to begin with to allow them to accumulate even more. So it's a, you know, the, the, the method of data collection in this case is not objective. Jess, what about you? What was your, what was your take on this? Yeah, no, there were a few really powerful aspects of this study. I think um, at least that, that struck me as I was reading it. I think one of the things that the authors noted was that the states that had the most debt were where people had the most debt were the least likely to expand Medicaid. And so it reinforces Erica's concept of this burden of disparity in certain regions of the country where it's not as if there is random allocation of Medicaid expansion around the United States or there's allocation based on perceived need. There are other factors that were driving states to decide whether or not to expand Medicaid in the context of the ACA and communities that were already burdened by various health disparities, as Erica was talking about, were least likely to see the expansion. And then we're more likely to to kind of see these continued disparities and these increased disparities in terms of in, in, in terms of, of medical debt, which is which is kind of tragic. I think that the, the upside that stood out for me is that this was a, a nice example of public policy addressing health disparities, and at least a, along this one domain. And I think, you know, as we were discussing in the beginning, I think medical debt is linked to all sorts of poor health and financial, individual health and financial and family-related sequelae. And so to the extent that that could be addressed and that and medical debt could be reduced through public policy is a 
is a powerful message that you know things can change and it takes time and it takes political will, but that things can change. So I guess the short version is I saw I saw some some elements that made me very sad in kind of seeing these perpetuated disparities, but then also seeing you know through this research the power of of public policy to to dramatically reduce a disparity in, you know, this was this this study took place over a, you know, if we look at, you know, 2014 over a seven-year period, for example, between the expansion of Medicaid from ACA to now. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so you pointed there to the fact that the ACA was implemented in places where medical debt was already lower. And I'm just curious whether, whether either of you can, you know, see that as a potential source of, of bias in these results. Not that I, it's not that I don't trust the overall trend, but, you know, getting the exact number around the benefit. I'm curious whether, whether that leads you to have any concern at all about, you know, potentially over or underestimating the, the effect size, or whether you think that they've, you know, the approach that they've used is strong enough to, to account for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, I would say yes. I mean, I agree with you. It's unclear the effect of this bias, but I think to the extent that there were people who had higher levels of medical debt that were systematically in regions of the country where Medicaid was not expanded, and Medicaid was expanded in, you know, in regions where people had less medical debt and perhaps also had less accompanying other sorts of health burdens, as Erica was talking, less stressors uh, on their health in general, it could, you know, I, I could potentially see that the, you know, that we were missing, you know, capturing data or missing looking at potential effect of people who were um, the most burdened by medical debt in a way that was, that would have the most severe implications on their health. It's not exactly clear kind of what direction that might affect their estimates, but I think you're right. I mean, there is concern for some bias in this kind of natural experiment. Yeah, and I let me just to be clear. I mean, I I, I'm, I have no concern about the 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 general, you know, effect. I mean, it's clear to me there is an effect. You know, it's just a question of, you know, exactly what that benefit is. You know, Erica, the other question that I have, and and I'm going to ask you to speculate here because we don't know the answer to this question, and I think there's no way to truly figure it out. But given that the states that implemented the Medicare expansion were states that had a smaller burden of, of average debt to begin with. Do you think that if if states that or that that didn't expand but already have a higher burden of medical debt, that the effects that the ACA expansion might have would be would be bigger in those states, or do you think it would be smaller because the the amount of debt that people already have is so large that it's just harder to make an impact? I think it would be just more positive, meaning that I think that if it was uh, implemented in an unbiased fashion, that it would just, it would have had a positive impact, I think, across the board. But I want to say something about this study, and I know it's an academic study, so it's very, it's going to be sterile to a degree, but I think that I would like to see more of this flushed out. Like, I even feel like there should be some sort of qualitative piece to it, because we don't see you know, I'm from here, so I can immediately put faces to these pictures, right? My family, other families that look like me. So I feel like there are just some things in the background that we aren't, that somebody needs to say. I feel like there needs to be some sort of op-ed about this. Like, you know, 
political affiliations is something that is an elephant in the room. Race is an elephant in the room. Socioeconomic status, of course, is an elephant in the room that I just think needs to be. I would like to kind of see more meat on the bone to this, like or some sort of qualitative picture, because I think that we're going to we're going to read this. We're going to sort of compartmentalize it, and then we're not going to do anything about it. But as a researcher who's now going to be working in the South, right, I, I know this information, so I kind of have to, to, to contextualize it, empathize with it, and do something about it, right? So I, I don't know. I just feel like I don't want this just to be a paper that was published, and then we, we just kind of, oh, it's those states. They're always like that because they always have a, a bunch of other issues, and then leave it at that. I feel like something needs to something needs to happen. I, I think I think you make a, 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 an outstanding point, and probably one that we haven't really gotten enough into on this program, which is the you know that it is it's very easy to look at a bunch of numbers and not remember the the people who are behind those numbers, whether it be something you know like this related to medical debt or you know just related to illness in general. You know, I'm curious, though, your thoughts. Do you think that the reason why there isn't a qualitative component to this, this was this was done by an economist, but I don't think that that makes any difference that it was an economist versus, say, an epidemiologist, that, you know, we are generally not trained extensively in qualitative methods and probably may not put as much value into them as we do in the in the quantitative analysis. You know, I'm I'm curious your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, an economist is a social scientist, right? So they should know better. But I think that we just sort of it's an it's an it's an expected story, right? So there's no there's no call to urgency because it's just business as usual. So I think that we just sort of file it in, oh, this was expected, this is typical, and it's just kind of like we we, we just kind of do business as usual. But I, I mean, like for me personally, like I say, I, I take personal interest in this because I'm starting to work in a southern state. So I, so I, I'm, I'm keenly interested, especially when I'm trying to get people to take a survey or to let me put a monitor out in front of their home. It just, you know, knowing that they have these other issues that I wasn't even thinking about is, is really powerful. But I think that, yeah, we don't value the qualitative approach because, you know, with the qualitative approach, it comes a, a, a face that you can't ignore, right? We can just sort of close this paper and be like, it, it never happened and sort of move on with our lives. But when you actually see the people, when you go into their communities and you see that they're dealing with issues like hookworm, I mean, like in the South, hookworm is making a resurgence and you just sort of put the picture together, then it, the minute means that you can no longer, we can no longer sit behind a Zoom call or an ivory tower and not do anything about it. So I think it's easier for us to just sort of not request or demand a face to this because it, it lets us off the hook. I, I think that's so well said. And I, I, I think, you know, when you, since we're going to talk about communication in, in the next segment, when you see a media report on a study like this, they don't they don't immediately jump into the numbers. The first thing that they always do is they will present a story about a person who is personally affected to ground, you know, the 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 numbers that they're going to present, you know, in a in a human face and I I have to admit as you know as a, as an epidemiologist, I always kind of react when I hear those news stories because I worry that you are, you know, that the media is presenting one picture 
that doesn't necessarily represent the totality of what's going on. On the other hand, there's no question that that is the part that that most people react to. And I, I would certainly agree that we don't, you know, we don't put enough value in that. Yeah. Other other comments people want to want to raise about this study? Anything of interest? I I, I really, I mean, I have to just strongly agree with Erica in my read of it. The big missing piece was the racism element in terms of trying to understand baseline medical debt at the start of their study. There was no commentary as to what was causing this discrepancy. They were describing the discrepancy without hypothesizing what was behind it. And I think I, I, I would have I would have liked to, to, to know more. Maybe that was beyond the scope of this particular study, but just kind of what you know what were the what were the driving factors that may have contributed to this differential? I thought that was kind of an interesting gap. So I second Erica's comment in that regard. And the second note that I had was that obviously, you know, this this is very worrisome in one regard in the era of COVID, where this study ended before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But in terms of, you know, millions and millions of people have had, you know, tremendous medical expenditures over the last year and a half as a result of the pandemic. And, and so the question is kind of how does that play and how does expansion of Medicaid and all these factors that we've been talking about play into disparities in medical, in medical debt right now? And how do kind of, uh, you know, I think about kind of structural racist factors and how do those play into differentials in debt that we might see today in the context of the pandemic, kind of a a year plus after the end of this study. So I think that's the interesting follow-up, and I hope that the authors and others kind of jump into looking at those questions. Yeah, I would agree. And, and you you know, use the term structural racism, which is not I didn't use the term when I was talking about credit reporting. But I, I would say that's exactly what we're talking about. The credit reporting itself has structural racism built into it because it 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 awards benefits for for those who already have advantages and doesn't give those same benefits to those who don't. So it's 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 clearly baked in. Okay, let's move on then to our second topic. So we're going to talk about the role of epidemiologists in communicating information about SARS-CoV-2. So this is inspired by a, a paper that we saw in the International Journal of Epidemiology called The Role of Epidemiologists in Communicating SARS-CoV-2 Evidence, a Call for Adopting Standards by Meredith Smith and colleagues. And, you know, this article makes the case that, you know, epidemiologists, and I don't think anybody would disagree, that epidemiologists have a really important role to play in achieving public health goals as, as far as it comes to explaining the research and public health messaging around what to do with SARS-CoV-2. And they sort of put this in the context of the the infodemic, the, you know, the condition, in, they say, condition in which an overabundance of information, including both misinformation and disinformation, is being disseminated in real time via multiple channels alongside an unfolding pandemic. So we have all of this bad information out there or misinformation out there at a time when people you know, really do need good information. And so they have this, this call for epidemiologists to be more involved. You know, this is sort of coming middle of, or hopefully towards the end of the pandemic, but I think middle of is probably a, a more reasonable uh, way to phrase it. And so this is, you know, these are conversations that have been going on for a long time, but they had three 
very specific recommendations. So one is that epidemiologists should, and by the way, I should say they, they refer to this as an urgent ethical imperative that we adopt uh, epidemiologic literacy standards that we as epidemiologists should be doing this. So their three recommendations are essentially to define epidemiologic concepts in plain language. So define them in ways that people can easily understand what is coming out of medical research and epidemiologic research. Number two, disseminate research protocols and findings in plain language summaries. And number three, establish new competency requirements in risk communication for epidemiologists. Now, I have I have no issues with any of those things. Those things all seem to me like good things. On the other hand, we are also facing a period in which more and more is being asked of epidemiologic training programs. People want, you know, students to come away with more training in in ethics, more training in study management, more training in qualitative data collection and methods, and adding and adding and adding. So the question to me is not whether or not these this is a good idea, although you're both free to weigh in on whether you see this as a, a good idea. But to me, the question is, how do we do this in a way that is is effective given the other roles that we play as epidemiologists and and the demands on our time? Where does this sort of factor in? And then the question I always ask of everybody who ever asks epidemiologists and epi training programs to do more is what would you take out in order to be able to put this into the curriculum or what would you take out of an epidemiologist job to make room for this so erica let me start with you and you can take any of those questions that that you want to what do you think you know it's funny so since i did my postdoc at bu i think we live in a bubble because i i feel like the overwhelming majority of us at BU are already doing a lot of this and more. Like what you know, at the last meeting that I had before I, you know, I, I ended my time there, was just listening to all the people who were doing their regular research work and then also working in the community on community-based projects. So it's like I think we live in a bu- bubble because we're already doing a lot of this. But one thing that I did notice in this paper was that there were three recommendations, but I thought that the most important recommendation was in the conclusion. I thought the conclusion should have been baked into another recommendation. I think that when we start by, so in, in, in economics, so, you know, I have training as an economist. And one of the things that we do is that we, there's a theory or a type of condition, an equilibrium condition, where we call it Pareto efficiency or Pareto optimality. And it's a situation where we have an equilibrium, a a distribution of goods and services or whatever, but we want to make sure that everyone is better off and no one is worse off. So I think that just sort of having that kind of mindset when you're doing any of these recommendations or any work as an epidemiologist, you know that whatever your work is, when you go into a situation, when you analyze data, when you're in a community, when you're on a committee, that you are making sure that your job role is to try to make everyone better off and not one person worse off. And when you have that mindset, it, of, of course, it's sort of like an, a, an ideal philosophical sort of set of conditions where you rarely can do that. But when you sort of sit in the back of your mind that when I go into this study or whatever I'm doing, I'm going to have that kind of framework, I think you begin to ask questions, a deeper questions. And a lot of those questions that were in the in the conclusions, they were talking about overcoming vaccine hesitancy, which is a huge issue. 
I mean, when we kind of think about the, the first paper that we went over with the medical debt, can you imagine going into a community where you're trying to communicate misinformation, but they're like, but I have like raw sewage coming out of my, 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 mm-hmm. my sewer and you want me to get a shot? You, you, why are you here now? You weren't here when I was, compl-. you know, so it's just sort of thinking about that. So I think that in general, as we as epidemiologists should always have, I'm going to make everybody better off, but try not to make any one person or group worse off, I think can kind of supersede all of these recommendations because you're centering yourself in the moment and you're making sure that you are trying to do the best for everyone the best way that you can. And you're going to ask these kinds of questions because that's what you're thinking. Who are the most hesitant? Why are they hesitant? Things like that. So well said. So well said. Jess, what about you? What's your reaction to all of this? Yeah, I mean, I I agree. And, and I mean, one of the things that I think what jumped out at me as maybe the most salient point coming out of this article was the idea that our professional journals require a lay abstract of our research, that we have an abstract that's written in scientific ease. And then, you know, and then we put together the, you know, that it's that there's like the, the Twitter version of the abstract to at least allow the researchers control over that narrative, because as we've been talking about sometimes, and the the paper talked about how journalists can grab incorrectly, and we see it with COVID all all the time, and and to the detriment of the science, and to whatever the message is embedded in your science, they will grab some element and convey it in a way that is confusing, or convey it in a way that is not what the research actually said, and to give you know, the, the scientists, the ability to articulate the, it to require that kind of an articulation of the summary of the research in conjunction with your scientific paper, I think, I think is really important. I mean, I think, Matt, your comments about how do you weave in this sort of training into a doctoral program, for example, I feel like that was even like an issue of contention 10 years ago when I was, you know, finishing my doctoral work and, you know, wanting to take, they want us to take courses in communications and budgeting and management and all of these things, in addition to physiology and toxicology and epidemiology and statistics and all these things, like from an environmental health training standpoint that we were, you know, that we were also taking it, you know, taking. And I think in some way there is a role for the institutions here that employ us to help. I think, I mean, I, I know from my own research, you know, as I have thought about communicating kind of complex statistical findings, for example, I have found, you know, the communications team at our university, like really skilled at doing that and, and, and much better than I am in terms of being able to talk with me and help me distill what are like, what is the, the, the message of this research and of what, you know, and so I think that the institutions can really play a role for those of us in the profession to provide people who have the expertise in communication to help us translate the findings. I couldn't agree more. I do I'm curious, do either of you did either of you get any training in scientific communication during your uh, master's or doctoral work? No, but I think it, I know this is sort of like I'm thinking big picture here, so like I'm being more philosophical here. But I think that we should also steer students into doing something that they want. Like uh, the reality mm. in in graduate school is that you're you're working with an advisor who has a grant funding to work on this project. It may not be what you want to do, but you mm-hmm. do it. But I think that we also need to steer students when possible to do things that they want to do. So I found the subject that I was interested in was very personal to me. So it was easy to 
communicate it because I was in it. But I think that as long as we're creating students in, in a model where we're just, they're working on things just to get through the program, I think you're going to have a need for those kinds of things because they're not really even sold on what they're doing either. I know if I was in graduate school and I had to work on an air pollution project, I'd probably be like, I don't like it. I don't enjoy it. I don't understand it. And I wouldn't think about those kinds of things. But because I studied something that I was really passionate about, those things kind of fell in place or I knew that I needed to get them. And so I reached out to the people who could help me to be better with it. I think that's 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 right. And I, I do think that, you know, there are some people who are better at communication than others. And some people will you know, naturally be able to to take on a role as scientific communicator. And others of us, and probably I'm one of them, you know, aren't quite as good at it and would, would certainly need more training to be able to really effectively communicate some of the, you know, complex things that we are you know, tasked with, with, with working on. So I, you know, I do think there is, I think there's a role for it. I, and so when I was asking the question at the beginning, I don't, I don't know what I would say we take out of the curriculum, but I, this does seem to me that the pandemic has exposed us, that, that we are not as effective at communicating as, as we need to be in order, when, you know, when a crisis like this arrives. And I, I, I think we're, we're seeing the, the problems of that failure right there. I would add just one point that I feel like this article a little bit fell into that the bubble of an assumption that if only people perfectly understood the science, then they would make a different decision about masks or about vaccination or about our, about distancing or whatever it is. And I think that's, that's, and that, you know, that's a bubble. Right. The idea that the reason people are not following the advice from on high is because they don't understand it. Yes. And largely that is not true. Yes. It is not. And and so I think I think, you know, that requires us to to think deeper about what we're doing. It's not just an issue of we're not communicating clearly. It's an it's an it's an issue of fundamental distrust and fundamental differences in terms of frameworks of understanding that that is not going to be solved by you know a press release that is worded in one way versus another way Eric, you are nodding your head vigorously. Do you want the last word on this one? I just, I just think that was very, so well said, uh, Dr. Liebler. I, I think that, yeah. And I think that one of the things we have to come to terms with as epidemiologists is we may not be studying things that are important at the end of the day. Like, you know, if I'm in the South and I'm thinking, oh, it's sound or noise that's the issue, but it could be medical debt. I could be sort of missing the, the picture here. So I think sometimes we just kind of have to, to realize that we also may not be <laughs> be studying the things that are important. A really, a really important reminder to all of us. Absolutely. Okay. Well, then let's move on to our last segment, which is our amazing and amusing, which requires no introduction. Jess, what do you, what do you got for us this time? I have a funny paper that was just published in Science, and maybe you or some of our readers have seen it. It was published just in the beginning of August, kind of coincident with the Olympics about squirrel acrobatics. And, no, I did not hear uh, about no, squirrel acrobatics. So no, this was, so this, this paper was published basically looking at how do squirrels adjust their physical feats in the context of different environmental settings, right? Like, so can they, where they seem to make these huge leaps between branches that have different give 
when they land on the branches. And I don't know, I mean, I have been watching, I have to say, for my year of work from home, I've been kept company by a lot of squirrels out the window. Me too. And so we see a lot of their kind of acrobatics as they're jumping around. And so anyway, this was this was research that was done at the University of California in Berkeley, looking at wild squirrels. I have a, a deep interest in urban wild mammals. And so, so this is why this kind of piqued my interest. And basically what they did is they took some squirrels that surrounded the university and they set up an obstacle course with different sorts of characteristics of, of branches. So different branch compositions and then different kind of leaping distances that they expected the squirrels to leap from branch to branch. And then they baited these obstacle courses with peanut butter to try to get the squirrels to enter them. And then they observed kind of how far could the squirrels jump onto what condition in terms of the physics of the branch was how hollow was the branch, you know, all these different characteristics. What were jumps that the squirrels were willing or were not willing to do? Did they learn from time to time, kind of how to land on certain branches or was it innate? And, and largely their results were that it was innate, that the squirrels, so the squirrels missed none of the jumps, wow. basically. And squirrels so, are awesome. so, right. So that the idea was that even without having practiced or out without having done it before, they had this innate understanding of, of physics, of being able to move their bodies through space which was fascinating. And so this paper was published, like right as we were seeing, you know, all of our favorite gymnasts twirl through the air, obviously having practiced a tremendous amount to be able to do that. It's not something we can, you know, we can do at all. So I thought this was kind of a cool paper and it, it was very, very relevant to the moment. Squirrels are amazing unless you want to keep them off your bird feeder. <laughs> Erica, what about you? What do you got? Okay, so this is going to be completely random. So we like random. <laughs> So part of like, you know, I, I read a stat from the CDC about the number. It's going to start out solemn, but it's going to get really funny. But so one of the stats from the CDC was that, you know, the percentage of African-Americans who have who are vaccinated, you know, it's, it's pretty low. And so, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what, what some of the sources of the hesitancy. So I kind of went down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole. And then just like unrelated to COVID or anything is this sort of conspiracy theory that I don't know if you guys have ever looked looked out around you and have seen like a whole bunch of different mattress stores like mattress of firm course. yeah and they like <laughs> so i just read some conspiracy theory that they're like these you know like there if you some people have mapped them out and there's like literally like seven or eight within a small vicinity oh yeah and so it's just like all <laughs> of the crazy conspiracies about why there are all these mattress firms and in, in, in neighborhoods it's just mattress like really discounters. yeah <laughs> so right. i just you know there's a million different conspiracy theories but one that i thought was really interesting is that because there's so many around places that they could be places where people could you know could go to get their um vaccines and stuff so i just thought it was just really funny but it was just really weird the way our mind can do acrobats to kind of justify a position or not so i just thought so it was just true. really interesting so true so, so from squirrel acrobatics to human mental, mental <laughs> right i love it <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> okay well so then while we're on the subject of of animals i have a question a yes or no question for you both do you believe that you could beat a cat in a fight Probably not. I don't know about you, Erica. I don't know. I don't. Cats, cats, cats can be kind of ferocious, you know. Erica like says yes. She says Erica yes. Says yeah, yes. No, she's. Yeah, I'm, I'm wimpier. Okay. What about what about a goose? <laughs> 
Yes. Okay. I, I have to say again, like I, you know, in my neighborhood, we have all these wild turkeys that are probably the size. Yeah, of Yeah, we do too. They're big. And I don't know. I say I keep my distance. All right. What about a kangaroo? No, no, no. Uh, the reason I bring this up and I do not know this has been making the rounds on on social media. YouGov has a has this poll that they do where they ask this question of people. Which of the following animals, if any, do you think you could beat in a fight if you were unarmed? And they go from rat, house cat, goose, medium-sized dog, eagle, large dog, chimpanzee, wolf, crocodile, lion, elephant, grizzly bear. And what, what, it, what is being presented in this figure that I have is the fact that for every single one of them, Americans are more confident that they could beat one of these animals in a fight than are people from Britain. Why in the world would this be? Is it our just like innate sense that, you know, we could do anything? We won the Uh, Revolutionary War. uh Uh-huh. There you go. (laughs) That's That's probably the explanation right there. Only correlated with beating up a goose. (laughs) I just that one I just thought was really interesting, so I thought I would bring that one in. That is that is funny. It's just like America. Is it just like American? Was the word bravura or like you know bravado? bravado yeah. Like are we just we just think we're strong in general in a way I that's disproportionate to our size or skills? I think it is. Yeah, but without it, without getting the ASPCA involved, yeah. like I yeah. have gotten into altercations with. A cat and a goose. So when you mentioned hey. those, so I was like, check, check. A goose too. Wow. <laughs> yes. Okay. In, well, in now the, in the Fenway now we know area. For sure. Yes. Oh wow. So. <laughs> okay. Very cool. I won't ask how those ended. I'm here. Okay. Good. <laughs> so I think that is the perfect place to end. I particularly want to thank Dr. Erica Walker for joining us today. And that is the end of our program. If you got any feedback on this or any other episode, or you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can tweet us at PopHealthyX, or you can tweet me at, at ProfMattFox, or you can tweet Don at, at DTheo1 or Chris at ID.Gill, or you can find us on the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Leslie Talalian, Assistant Dean of Lifelong Learning at the BU School of Public Health, for supporting the podcast, and Nick Guler for sound and editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it, and we hope you will download our next episode.